When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. Become a confident, compassionate leader while sharpening your brand from the inside out. It's time to gear up to learn from expert guests and your host, Amber Hurdle. Welcome back to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Hurdle, and I... I know I say this a lot because I only bring guests that I just know you will love. I'm very protective of you as my audience, as you know, but uh, this one kind of got me in the feels. Um, This interview that we're going to have today, I did maybe a little bit more cyber stalking of this particular guest just because I think you will find her as fascinating as I do. So let me tell you a little bit about Emily. Emily Chang is a seasoned executive who has worked with some of the world's most renowned companies like Procter & Gamble, Apple, Starbucks, some of our favorite brands. Over the last 21 years, her job has brought her and her family to eight different homes across the U.S. and China. And everywhere she's lived, Emily has found herself at the unique intersection of her offer and offense. Life has served up young people who have been abused, neglected, and marginalized to find sanctuary in her spare room. Among her deeply personal accounts, Emily shares heart-wrenching stories of an emotionally abused child bride, a dying 18-month-old boy born with, I'm not even sure if I could pronounce this, hydrocephalus, and the abused daughter of a local prostitute. Now more than ever, social purpose has become an urgent leadership imperative, and Emily's book, The Spare Room, will help you identify your social legacy to live a more intentional life and lead with authentic purpose. Welcome, Emily, to the Velvet Machete Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So before we even get into your backstory, which is an incredible journey, can you just share, just so we have this foundational word in place or phrase in place, what do you mean by social legacy? Yeah, I I really believe and you know I'm just about to turn 45. I feel like I've lived a a couple decades and met a lot of interesting people that we really are all born to be extraordinary. I have not met anybody who looks to me like, wow, they're just really going to live a really ordinary life and then die. You know, right. and I were either living it in the midst of seeking it or sort of missing it because there's some sort of a blinder on. So I was trying to find a way to articulate what it is that we have the opportunity to do with this one precious life. Mm -hmm. And we use the word purpose a lot. We use a lot of other sort of big higher level phrases that sometimes can be a little bit daunting. So Mm -hmm. when I try to define what it is, I think very simply, it's about leaving things better than we found them. That to me is what legacy is. And then I added social to it because social is defining the space in which we want to have an impact. And for everybody, it's different. For some people, their social legacy is their home. For some people, it's their neighborhood. There's an amazing story that didn't end up making the book about a guy in his neighborhood and what he chose to do. 
It could be your country, your region. For some people in the book, like Shannon, it's the earth and what we're doing to it. So defining what is social to you and then really articulating what you want your legacy to be, I think does allow us to live with more intentionality because we often have big ideas of this is the thing that bugs me, or this is the thing I think I generally do, but there's power to words. And when we're clear and specific and we edit down to what we really want that thing to be, I think it really helps empower us. Yeah. And you, you talk about like, what's the one thing in life that offends me? And I can think of more than one, (laughs) but there are, I know in my soul, what those things are for me. And that's how I, that's how I focus my intention. So can you unpack that a little bit for us and how you discovered that question? Yeah, it came because I started thinking about writing this book in 2017. And then as luck would have it, I was at a dinner party sitting next to a best-selling author and saying, oh, I've been thinking about writing a book, explaining the premise of the spare room. And it turned out the woman sitting across from me was the coordinator for TEDx for Shanghai. And she said, actually, that would be a great TEDx story. So I put the book on the back burner and started doing the TEDx preparation. And I'll tell you, through the course of the preparation, it's a nine-month sort of experience. You unpack your story, you dive deeper and deeper, and you really try and interrogate what it is you really, really want to say. What is your idea worth sharing? And it came down to a really simple premise that everybody's got an offer, what you're uniquely positioned to contribute, and everyone's got an offense, which is the thing that really calls to us more than anything else. And you're right, Amber, there are lots of things that call to me too, but there's probably (laughs) one thing that stops you where you're like, I literally cannot get on with my day. I cannot walk by this thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's the offense. And when you find the intersection of those things, that's where I think you you discover what we're calling your social legacy. Yeah, I love that. So you you found your way to um, put your offer or your solution into situations and you found that through your spare room. So can you take us back? And I know that you and your family have really impacted 16 young people. That's a lot. You just said I'm 45, <laughs> 16 young people in that, in that time frame. while you've also been an executive and traveling the world and everything else. Um, how did that, how did you begin? And then at what point did you just say, oh no, this is my thing? Oh, that's a great question. So it started when I was just 20, I was still an undergrad and I was driving by a a young girl. She's the very first story in chapter one. Her name is Leah. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't drive by and I wanted to, it wasn't like I I was feeling very philanthropic. You know, it was like, I want to get home. This weather is crappy. I haven't had dinner. I have so much to do, but she was clearly hurt. She was sitting huddled on the curb with sleety, dirty rainwater splashing over her. And when I called out to her and she lifted her little face, I could tell that she'd been hurt. And, and so I ended up bringing her to my apartment just for the night. Actually, I first took her to dinner and then dinner turned into like, do you have a place to stay tonight? You know, and again, it wasn't particularly philanthropic or intentional. It was sort of like, I can't let you just go back out there. And then one night turned into a week, into months. And I I think that's probably the first lesson, which is if you asked me, would you take in a teen prostitute who's homeless for four (laughs) months? I would have been like, are you kidding me? I have three jobs. I'm putting myself through undergrad but we have this infinite capacity to give. And when we do kind of 
say yes and lean into these opportunities, you find that life sort of unfolds in this really magical abundance. You have more time, you have more capability, you have more energy to do all of these things. Um, so yeah, that was the first girl that I met. And that was not the point at which I thought this is my thing for sure. Um, <laughs> it's when I realized I was going to marry my husband though, because he was my boyfriend at the time. And he was incredibly supportive and helpful, even when she found herself in a bad situation when, when like, he was the first one to jump up at the table where we were studying and, and he just put on his jacket. He said, write down where she is. I'll go get her right now. And over time, we had a couple more kids and then young people in our spare room. I think it wasn't really until we were in Shanghai. So maybe over a decade after we had Leah. So maybe we're slow learners. <laughs> um, <laughs> When there was, there was an opportunity to have this young man in our home and he was the one who gave me this word that I use as my social legacy, which is kibun. He's from South Korea. And one day he was sitting in our home. He said, you have good kibun. And I remember we're, the three of us were sitting around. My daughter was sleeping already. I said, what's kibun? And he said, it's sort of like, there's no English translation. It's like comfort for the spirit. He said, this house feels like it's comfortable for my spirit. And I thought, oh, that's so lovely. That's what I want to do. That's the kind of environment I want to create, both at work and at home. So I think it was when he said that, that something kind of clicked. And I kind of went, yeah, that's what I want to do. And today we might call it in the workplace a sense of belonging, right? right. Or diversity, equity, inclusion. But ultimately for me, it's good kaboon. Like I want people to feel comfort in their spirit when they come into my space, that they feel that they can be exactly who they are, that they're completely welcome and embraced. Yeah. I love that. It's really, really important to me for anyone who comes into my space or my path that they feel seen. And I yeah. think that's a little that's a, a small piece of that bigger picture that you're, you're talking about. I love that. Kaboom. Um, <clears throat> so I, I wanted, I, I didn't intend on touching on this, but you said that's when I knew I was going to marry my husband. So as we're looking at our social legacy and as we're making these small choices, because to your point, you're like, I'm not feeling incredibly philanthropic. It was kind of a little bit of an inconvenience, a lot of an inconvenience to me. It took us 10 mm -hmm. years, but you made small choices that were actually in alignment with your core values, I'd have to imagine, and mm -hmm. watching your husband respond or future husband respond to those same things showed you that he has those core values. So as we're going about life and we're, we're trying to make our impact and we're trying to offer ourselves, how important do you feel it is to unite um, go shoulder to shoulder with other people who share that. I think when you say that, I think it's really important if that is an interest to live with intentionality and discover what it is that we can contribute. And we have this simple formula in our family, which says contribute over consume has to be greater than one. Like we want to contribute more than we consume. I think if we find like-minded people that is incredibly additive, but I wouldn't define it as I have to find people who want to give in exactly the same way I do. I think that right. kind of narrows the universe, you know? Yeah. And I do think that's something that's a comfort level. We, we like to find people who feel comfortable and familiar. Um, but I actually think like even in writing this book, when my publisher said, I love your stories, I love the idea of a spare room, but I want more. I want more diversity, more stories, more people in different industries and different levels and walks of life. 
And as I started interviewing, I added another 10 stories. I probably interviewed 40 or 45 people to get there. One, I started realizing we come from unbelievably different places. So, (laughs) you know, if there's a sense of a very tight knit community, we are incredibly diverse. But two, it really makes you realize everybody's positioned and created to do something more. Mm. Oh, I love that. Oh, say it again for the people in the back of the room. (laughs) I love it. I love, love, love it. So you also have reflected that this ongoing way of life of yours has increased your leadership capacity and has improved Mm -hmm. upon your ability to lead. And you encourage those that you lead to take on this posture as well. Can you share a little bit more about that and how you got there? I think the first thing is work-life integration. We talk about balance, but to me, balance, you know, you imagine two kids on a teeter-totter, it's got to be just perfect. And no one's got that perfect equilibrium, but integration just says you put it all together. I think it's a little scary for some people because it requires a degree of vulnerability. You're going to be a little more real at work. You're going to maybe bring some work home with you. I remember, you know, when I was growing up, people would say, the adults would say, leave work at work, don't bring it home. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of touting the opposite now, which is absolutely bring it home and bring home to work because it allows you to be a complete person. You know, I've always talked about integrated scheduling and I I literally, it's not just bring your kid to work. I've always brought my kid to work as often as I could, including the spare room kids. Yeah, because I think it helps your coworkers see you as a human being because people will always pigeonhole you in one way or the other. Some will vilify, some will put you on a pedestal, some will say you're this or that. But at the end of the day, you're a very multifaceted human being. And the more that you can help people see who you are, including your failures and shortcomings, I think the more you can relate on a human level. And that's the authenticity piece of it. I think the second benefit is your family understands what you do at work, especially your kids. So I remember having to go to work early and my daughter was still a toddler. She'd say, who are you going to work with? And I would say, you know, so-and-so who sat there, do you remember when you came to my office? She'd say, oh, she needs your help. And I'd say, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to a meeting with her because she needs my help. And she'd say, well, then you should go. And it gives them an empathy because they understand you do something important that involves humans and that you also love what you do. Yeah. And, and you're not abandoning them in favor of this other thing. You're doing this thing that you're designed to do that you enjoy doing that also benefits them and they can get excited about it too. I mean, there's, there's so much there. I love that. Um, How can other leaders, well, let me, let me kind of just give some, a little bit of the back story for my listeners. They're very responsive. They email me all the time. I mean, just the greatest listeners ever. And (laughs) And I think sometimes they get, you, you touched on it earlier, they get overwhelmed with like purpose. What's my purpose in this life? Or um, I, I know I'm meant for something greater, but I don't know what that thing is. And I'm struggling there. And, and you have a, a way where leaders can find their path to figuring out their spare room. Can you unpack that? So there's just some really tactical, tangible Mm -hmm. to-dos that my audience can, can take. 
Yeah, I think you'll see in the breadth of stories, some people, their social legacy becomes their job. They literally mm-hmm. pivot their lives to lean into something that really matters tremendously to them. Um, other people, I'd say like myself, you know, my per- the spare room is not something at work, but it's a philosophy I've sort of uncovered over the years. And it's become a way of life at home. And also something I try to bring from a spirit standpoint, like that comfort for the spirit, the good kibun into the workplace. But the way to get there, it is it is a very practical book. And in many ways, it's sort of like a a workbook. Um, Somebody just emailed me and she said, I downloaded your Audible and I thought it was great, but I couldn't do any of the exercises. And I said, oh, yeah, that, that is a good point because it's a big part of the book. Yeah. It's written to be very practical. And just like this, this subtitle that you read earlier, it's not particularly sexy. It's practical and it's intended to help you by the time you close your book, have your own action plan. And that's exactly what I heard is what you're hearing from your readers. As I was talking about the spare room, preparing for the TEDx, and then later doing some other sort of um, group discussions, you realize people fall in either one of those two camps, which is, I know my offer. I'm not sure about the offense or I know the offense, but I don't know what to do about it. So the first chapter is all about the offer. And if you don't know what it is, It'll walk you through a number of very practical things. And at the end of chapter one, you will have written your offer. Same with chapter two. And, you know, even in chapter two, God, I probably spent the most time on this chapter because I was trying to think through what framework can encompass what your offense might be. And I ended up with the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals because that is the most comprehensive framework. But then I was (laughs) really trying to unpack it for people so they don't have to struggle. It's like, well, I don't know if life underwater is really my offense. Like, what does that mean? So I was trying to make it really practical. And I did a ton of research to try and lay out, like, this is what it looks like in life. Is that the thing that bothers you? And and write really practical ways that these things manifest. And so they're check the boxes. And at the end of chapter two, you should have a pretty good idea. And, and maybe like you, there isn't just one thing, but there may be a collection of things that have a theme behind them. Mm-hmm. So you'll have your offense. And then chapter three is taking those two things, putting them together and then finding the intersection. And there are just a whole number of questions that help you articulate what your social legacy is. And I think it's important to not just stop there, right? There are six chapters. So what happens in the rest? One is to then create an action plan to go at it because it's one thing to have an articulation and feel good about it, but you still may not know what to do about it. And then I think I always like working at work with the end in mind. And I think living our lives with the end in mind is also really helpful because if you have a social legacy, that's a great step, especially for people in midlife like me, because sometimes you may have articulated success in a certain way and you're probably close to it or you've achieved it or maybe not, but then you realize that can't be it. There has to be more than this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's avoid the crisis. (laughs) Yes. And and even more impressive is the younger generation who are asking the question before they get there. They're like, I know there's more. Help me articulate more before I get to that point. And like, what a privilege to be able to come along that journey. So that's why the next chapter after the action plan, chapter five is what's your epitaph? And, you know, even in the beginning, as I was talking to my agent, she's like, are you sure this is where you want to go? Like tombstones? It's it's a little morbid, (laughs) but, but I feel like it's important to know, like, you know, that the seven regrets before Mm -hmm. dying, like what are the things people regret? Well, how do we live with no regrets? I think the best way is to define what that life 
well-lived looks like, and then write it down and then make sure that your social legacy sort of leans into that. And then, my God, you've got a North Star for as long as you are living this one life you get, you're kind of headed in a direction. And that, that intentionality gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you clarity of thought and a very easy way to prioritize your precious time and resources. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I think that among myriad of things, one of the things that drew me to you and your story in your book was that my audience is very tactical. They're like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And your book is very tactical. <laughs> At the end of every <laughs> chapter of my book, it's like, take action. Here are the, here are the steps. You read the, yeah. you read the chapter, here are the things. And so I love that. Um, so obviously um, we have Emily on the show because I think this book would be of extreme value to you as you're, you're looking for that um, path to legacy, um, very tactical things and um, things that you can do. Now, there's so many stories um, I want to touch on, and I, I did not put it in my notes. Um, I, I can't remember if it's the book or the, might've been your TED talk. You had a relationship with a young boy who you eventually adopted, and then he moved to the United States with a new family. I was gutted. I, w- I was just thinking through like, what that experience was for you, but the heart that you had um, for his best interest. Can you, and maybe in an abbreviated way, share that story and why mm-hmm. that was such a story that you chose for um, featuring? Yeah, his name is Teo, and he Teo, came to my house. Teo was probably our 14th spare room occupant, he, 13th or 14th. He was just 18 months old when he first came to our place, and he just came to die. He'd been born with extreme hydrocephalus, which is where the cerebrospinal fluid goes up from your spine into your head. But because of some malfunction, it can't go back down. So what happens is the fluid collects and then your head swells because baby skulls are soft. Um, and, and it's actually not a very uncommon thing. You normally install a shunt and you drain that fluid and it passes through the system. But when you don't have that medical care, you know, that the fluid just keeps swelling. He'd been handed to a bad doctor who basically drilled a hole in his head, a hole like, you know, with a drill bit kind of drill, and then handed him back to the parents and said, he's got the shunt and they didn't know any better, but he was obviously in extreme pain, screaming. He wasn't better. So they gave him to an orphanage and they'd already spent all their money. I mean, it was just, you know, tragedy upon tragedy. So he was lying in an orphanage and, you know, these aren't very well staffed, even with the best of intentions. So he was not really getting a ton of care because he didn't look like he was going to make it. A nonprofit walked through, noticed him and thought, oh my God, how, how can this be happening? And called us because of a previous kid, which we had just been taking care of for our neighbors. So not related at all, but we'd been you know, briefly in touch with them. And that's sort of how one kid has translated to the next kid through the last two decades. He ended up coming to our house in part because my daughter overheard us talking about him. She was only four. And she was sort of like, what, your kid, what, what kid you talking about? And then she's like, why aren't we getting him? we can't let him die. So she, she was sort of like, we're going to get him right now. And I said, okay, let's go get him then. But you know, he's not comfortable. I can hear him in the background, honey, screaming in pain. 
And she's like, well, he's screaming in pain there or he's screaming in pain in our house where it's warm. And I was like, yeah, that does simplify it. So we brought him home and she, you know, in Chinese elder sister is Jijie. She's still his Jijie. When he sees her, he just lights up. He's now nine. And she taught him to roll over. She taught him to hold his own bottle. She has been his protector and savior and believer, like in in all things. And she's also the annoyed big sibling sometimes where she's like, get off my bed. (laughs) Yeah, it's all of those things. So he was with us on and off for five years because we kept trying to find him a forever family. So he would go live with a family and just see if it would work out. But he he really was high need and it's tough. And he always somehow ended up back with us. So we had him on and off for about three years in total in our home. And finally he was five and you know, he looks different than other kids. He's mentally challenged. He's physically challenged. And we thought it's going to be really hard for him to find a home. And he calls me mom. He calls my husband, dad, and Lainey is Gigi. So let's just adopt him. And and that's how we began the process. Long story short, we were in the US doing all of our fingerprinting and things that we have to do as Americans to adopt a baby. And we had to do this sort of medical check. And I think I wrote about this in the book where the doctor wanted to calibrate our expectations. And she's like, he, look at his CAT scan. There's no brain left. It's all been, it's not in his head anymore. So he can't understand anything you say. He can't, he will never communicate with you. He's a vegetable. And I'm like, it doesn't seem right. I know I might be biased, but like we have this list of words that he can say, you know, we always write new words on there. She's like, you're imagining it all. Uh, I was like, I I don't think I am. I don't think I am. And we ended up going home. And that night, I remember we bought this little jewelry set for my daughter who loves to make things. And then we bought a golf set for our son because we're like, this is a this is a statement of faith. Like, we don't believe that we reject it. And we believe he's going to stand up one day and he's going to play golf. And we just we had that box in our house for like seven. Yeah. Yeah. Just about seven years. He ended up um, with a different family and that was absolutely gutting. I think I cried at work for about three months straight. I mean, my boss was amazing. He was the guy who I will follow to the end of my days because when he heard we were adopting Teo and, and they've all met him because I brought him to work for our previous conversation, he quietly created an HR policy that enabled support of people adopting local Chinese kids and just oh. kind of handed it to me. And I, I was like, blown away. One of my most memorable professional moments in my life, Kenneth McPherson. And um, yeah, he, he was wonderful. And when he saw that we had given Teo to a family who was absolutely right for him and it was the right thing for him, but I was a, an emotional wreck. He, he looked at me one day, pulled me aside. He's like, you're about to cry. And I was like, yep, again. And he said, <laughs> what do you want me to do? What can I do to support you? And I said, you know, the best thing is just ignore me because I can't just go home because then I'll just wallow. I need to work. And if I get emotional, just like ignore me. Is that okay? And he said, yeah. And I remember we we went back into a meeting and then I was emotional and I'm actually like, I have tears streaming down my face very unprofessionally as a chief commercial officer in our executive meeting. And everyone's kind of staring at me and Kenneth goes, just ignore her, keep talking. And like, even at the risk of himself looking heartless, he was doing the thing that he asked me and I asked him to do. And I'm so grateful for him because those couple months were incredibly rough. But I do remember one thing my daughter said, and I don't think that's in the book. She, she's like, mom, why are you such a wreck? And I'm like, he's my son. You know, he's, he's been with you like half your life, Lainey. Do you not feel a hole in our family? 
and I remember she kind of quizzically looked at me. She was like six or seven. And she said, um, I don't know. I think we're like jeggings, mom. And I was like, I, I think you need to say more. Jeggings were her all-time favorite article of clothing. All she wore was okay. jeggings. Okay. And she said, I don't know. We're like jeggings. Like we stretch when people come in our home. And then when they leave, we just go back to our other shape. And I was like, oh, okay. And it actually helped more than you can imagine. Because you have a very profound right daughter. <laughs> I do. I do. She's much wiser than me, truly. <laughs> she teaches me all the time. In fact, this tattoo that I have on my finger, it's uh -huh. Chinese for a spirit of generosity. And I got it because of Lotus, the girl who was raised in a brothel. She yeah. tried my every last nerve because she was not particularly fond of women and she was really nice to men. She didn't have good hygiene. You could just kind of imagine the girl who survived what she survived. She wasn't like the sweetest, most docile girl. And one day I was just at my wits end and Lainey came running into the kitchen. She could, she could hear something brewing. And she whispered to me, mom, remember where she came from? Be generous. And then she ran back into her room and shut the door. Oh my gosh. And I was like, yep. And then later that week, I was taking one of my mentees to go get a tattoo because she said, could you just come with me? My parents won't come. I said, yeah, of course. A, a girl in her late 20s or something. And at the end of it, she's like, can I buy you a little tattoo? I just want to say thank you because I was there with her for like four hours. And I said, you know what? It was like spur of the moment. But I thought of that, what my daughter said to me. And I was like, yeah, I want to remember that. I want to put it somewhere where I can see it every day. So yeah, my, my daughter has inspired me with her wisdom to the point where I, I inked it on my skin. <laughs> That's amazing. She, she is an incredible human and I know was raised that way by uh, you all and everyone that you have opened your home to, I'm sure has made such an impact on her. There's no telling what that young lady is going to do in this life because of her experiences. So I know it's the middle of the night to you and I can talk to you all day, but then you won't sleep. So what, what parting advice other than read your book, because obviously that is um, going to be a very compelling and emotional journey uh, for any of our listeners. What parting advice would you give as people are wrapping their mind around this conversation? I would say, take your time because these aren't easy questions. They're like profound statements of who we are as humans and who we want to be. I'd say be gracious to yourself if you don't know, or if you feel like you haven't lived fully into your potential, because what a great opportunity that is now and how humbling and amazing it is to recognize you want to do more. And, and, you know, if you don't have an answer today, close the book and go back. I just, I just had this email this morning from this person who said, I want you to know, I read your book three times. I'm like, my gosh, it just came out like two months ago. Are you yeah. serious? <laughs> and he, he said, I read it the first time. I wanted to read the stories. The second time I kind of went through the exercises, but I didn't finish them because I couldn't figure out some of the wording. And he said, the, the third time was this morning. I nailed it. And I want to share with you my social legacy. And he said, is it weird that it took me three tries? And I thought, oh my God, I, First of all, I applaud your persistence. Second, mm -hmm. I don't think so. I mean, it took me a decade before Jeshin sat in at my dining table and talked about good kibun. And I was like, oh, that is what we do. So I think, I think we should be generous with ourselves. We're very generous with other people. Um, the forgiveness and the graciousness we extend to others, we often don't extend to ourselves, but we should, because if we're not gentle with ourselves and giving of space and time and breathing room, we're not going to be able to unpack the things that are the most important. But then when we do, 
I mean, you know, <laughs> the future opens up. Yeah. I think that might sound like pretty familiar advice, advice to our listeners <laughs> over the years. I think um, we have repeated that over and over again, is that showing yourself grace, show that you're the same generosity, the same love that you show other people. When you show mm-hmm. it to yourself, you do open up space for things that you might not ever have even envisioned being a part of your life or being a part of your, your spirit. So, um, Emily, I know people can find your book on Amazon. Where else can they find you online? Online come to social dash legacy.com. That's how people are emailing me and I, I read them all and I'm responding just like you, although you've built a base over many years and it's super impressive what, what you do and how you do it. Honestly, I've listened to a number of your podcasts over time oh, and I just you. think your authentic voice comes through loud and clear. So when you said, you know, your social legacy, I have no doubt. <laughs> so you can find me on the website um, on socials. I'm just at the spare room book. And I'm also on LinkedIn. That's probably because I've always been in a more sort of kind of professional space. That's mm-hmm. where I, I blog um, the most often other than on my own website. Oh, and if you want to hear from Lainey, she and I started doing taxi chats. So we were sitting in a car. We're in a car a lot because we live really far away from city center. And I was like, she was talking about something. She asked me a question. She's like, mom, where do you feel we sacrificed the most in our spare room? And I was like, oh, can I record this? So I recorded it. And now we have like 20 taxi chats where she and I are just talking on video because unlike me, I could talk to a brick wall happily for an hour. She's super introverted and she doesn't speak a lot. But somehow when we're talking about kids, especially Teo, who's the closest to her heart, and especially when we're on a camera versus in front of people, she really opens up. And I thought, oh, this is a good way for her to share her perspective. I love that. I'm about to become your biggest fan. Like seriously. (laughs) (laughs) That might have been my favorite part of this interview is like learning how your legacy has impacted your daughter and what she might do. I, my daughter, as you know, if you listen to episodes, um, is a big part of my story. Mm. And, um, and I just think it's vitally important for us to um, raise our kids in a way that sets them up to be contributing adults in a meaningful society. So totally. Emily, you've blessed me today. I know you've blessed our listeners. Um, thank you so much for being on this and for speaking your truth, both through your book and through your actions. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, as you all know, um, I just thank you and I cherish the time that you spend with me and my guests when you come visit, whether you're on YouTube or your favorite podcasting app or Amazon or the myriad of ways that we can listen to podcasts now. Um, We would love a rating and review if you feel compelled. That helps us reach more people so we can share amazing people like Emily with you and your friends and your colleagues. And I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in. Mentioned resources can be found at amberhurdle.com. Be sure to leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast app and subscribe so you never miss an update. As always, thank you to The Coup for our intro and outro music. See you next time.